0: Anderson coming at you again with another sectarian review podcast. Uh, this time, not from the luxurious studios of uh, the Mount Aloysius College uh, studios. We had a snow day today, so I'm here at home recording. Uh, joined today by Michael Farmer, who uh, has come up with a really cool topic. Michael Farmer, of course, from the Christian Humanist Podcast, the flagship of our network. Uh, Michael, how you doing?
1: I'm good, Danny. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Uh, I'm really happy that you contacted me. It's been a while since we've spoken, and uh, it's been always nice to catch up a little bit. And uh, And you came up with an idea for a show today that I think is kind of fun, and so I'm more than happy to uh, uh, to take you on. It's, uh, it's an exciting one. So, um, by the way, I wanted to talk just a second about the studio. I think I did come up with a name for the studio, one of my... Uh, colleagues at work said i should call it the inferno and put the you know abandon all hope Ye who enter uh logo above the door and so uh that might be where we go with the name of the studio um which is just an empty office that they gave me (laughs)
1: When I when I had a home studio and I recorded music in my house, I I used to call it stagflation. I thought that was a great. I thought that was a great studio name. That is a great studio name. <laughs> you should
0: release your songs somehow on the uh, the blog or something.
1: I, I've got them on Bandcamp
0: you should put a link up to that you you had one about Lionel Trilling you sent me once that was kind of I did yeah I
1: have a Lionel Trilling song
0: <laughs> probably the only song ever written about Lionel Trilling and so that's uh,
1: despite his magnetic personality <laughs> it's notable <laughs> i've got one about Suzanne Plachet too so that's uh that's that's quite a combination <laughs> I don't know why that
0: brings this to mind because Suzanne Plochette is not Valerie Harper but I met Valerie Harper once um, um, but I I pictured Suzanne Plochette and remembered Valerie Harper that would be another name cool name for a song so I loved Rhoda that was she was my favorite. Um, I almost killed her actually on accident. There was a an accident at the bookstore I was working at. She was looking for a book, and uh, I almost dumped a carton of books on her head while she was on the floor looking for
1: books. That would have been the, the man who killed Valerie Harper. <laughs> that That'd was, be a great song title. It would have,
0: I was so because Mary Tyler Moore was like my favorite show of all time. I was so excited to meet her, and uh, and then here I incidentally, I accidentally almost killed her. And uh, yeah, that would have been. Uh, Perfectly ironic for my life. So, did uh, she
1: know that you almost killed her? Like, uh, yeah. was she aware of oh, how yes. close she
0: came to yeah. the gaping maw of death? <laughs> she did. She looked at me with a big. Uh, uh, I don't think she realized how close it actually came to falling on her because I like pushed it to the side. Um, but yeah, so I think she thought I just had an accident and was embarrassed for me. But so anyway, it was uh, it was fun, and I came to find out later, much later. Um, this was like in the late '90s. She was asking me for a book about. Uh, Chinese fashion or something along those lines and I was so puzzled by that and then I come I found out years and years later that at that point she was actually doing some like a one-woman show about Pearl Buck or something like that and uh and it occurred to me that's why she was asking for uh, the books that she was asking for she was doing research at that time and I I had no idea so um Interesting story. Absolutely nothing to do with the topic today, though. <laughs> Michael, it's, uh, we're talking music today. Michael is our, uh, you know, house uh, musician and, uh, and our, our sort of uh, lead all things music. He does the really great stuff you do about Christian alternative music. And, uh, and you had the idea to do a show about U2 and REM. And I would like you to explain the concept of this episode.
1: It's it's not a very well developed concept, so I imagine we're going to be doing lots of rambling. Uh, but I, I was just I was thinking about the way those two bands defined what alternative rock was in the 80s and 90s, and how different their careers were after I don't know 1995. Mm. So they're both you know at a at a certain point they're both they're the two biggest bands in alternative rock. I think it's safe to say. Mm-hmm. And yet, U2 has spent the last 18 years or so. Uh, driving toward superstardom, you know, like like the being, the, the the really the only stadium rock band left. Whereas REM, by the time they broke up in, was that 2011?
0: Yeah, something. I think it was 2011. Something like,
1: they they were making these, I, I think, kind of weird, idiosyncratic little records that were certainly not as good as anything they did before that, but were very different than the records u two has made this century. So I I don't know where we're gonna go with this, but I I. I'm very interested in both of those bands. I love both of those bands up to a certain point in their careers. And uh, I mean, I'm interested in the way we can kind of pit them off of each other.
0: I think it's really great when you approached me with it. Um, I was very excited because these are two really important bands for me, like in my kind of development of musical taste, uh, probably you two was first. Um, I, I kind of discovered them right out of high school and they kind of like, you know, the Joshua Tree, I think, was uh, the, like, the first album that really kind of uh, meant something to me, kind of on a poetic level. And uh, and I think that from there, I was really interested in their career for a long time. And then R.E.M., I, I discovered a little bit later. And I think I came to like R.E.M. a little more uh, in the end. And, and I, I don't know why particularly, but I find myself listening to R.E.M. more than you 2 for the last several years. And so, um, yeah, I think that I'm really interested. I hadn't really thought about them as being kind of the templates for what we call alternative rock. They were both eighties bands that like sort of early mid eighties bands that predated that kind of radio format of alternative music that came along in the wake of Nirvana. Right. Um, and yet they were REM especially, I think was very much a template for that kind of music, uh, that, became labeled alternative and we actually talk about the usefulness of that term do you want to begin with that actually is that like (laughs) like, I actually always had trouble with that as a a term for music um, but
1: yeah I'm not exactly sure what it means It, it refers to music that is not as popular as mainstream rock music so I guess when those bands started in the 80s it would have been put off against what like Poison? That's yeah. later in the eighties. Yeah, like Whitney like,
0: Houston, the kind of uh sort of pop records of the of the eighties, right? Yeah. But you
1: wouldn't even call those rock records. Um like what's a big non alternative rock band from the eighties? Guns and Roses. Bon Jovi. Yeah, stuff like that. But Guns N' but- Roses
0: was not poison. I feel like Nirvana gets too much credit for destroying the hair bands. Cause I feel like guns N' roses had already done it. Um, <laughs> I think that they kind of were the ones that made all of like Rat and all those bands kind of irrelevant. And, uh,
1: yeah, but guns N' roses did it from within that genre and, yeah.
0: and Nirvana did it from outside. True. True. You know enough. What I mean? True enough, yeah. That Ron, Guns N' Roses is not Nirvana, that's for sure. Yeah, that's that's definitely true.
1: Um so, so but but Alternative describes these bands that are in theory not as popular, certainly not as mainstream, not not as straight down the middle. But in the nineties, alternative rock is the major rock radio format. It, that's, so. that's the
0: that's the irony of it, right? That's that's the problem with the term, is that it's trying to pitch something as as not mainstream, but mainstreaming it. By calling it not mainstream, and I feel like it's a very postmodern term. I think in a lot of ways, and so yeah, I feel like that that term has always given me trouble uh, for that reason. When it, if it's a radio format that clear Clearwater or whatever the clear Clear Channel clear, clear channel, channel. Uh, that Clear Channel owns, then it is mainstream, right? It is not alternative anymore. It's something that's being pumped at you from a corporate entity at that point. And
1: when, if I were any kind of scholar, I would have prepared for this and looked up when the term first started getting used, because the three bands you hear about or I hear about as the progenitors of it are REM, U2, and The Cure, whom I absolutely cannot stand oh, in no. any way. I love The Cure. Oh no. Oh, I can't stand him. <laughs> that guy's stupid. All, all I can, all I can hear, think of when I, when I hear The Cure is, uh, did you ever see that Saturday Night Live sketch with the goth kid who had a, had a public act show with uh chris Kattan. no i'm not todd i'm azrael abyss <laughs> i i yeah
0: <laughs> i understand other people not like you the cure i still enjoy those records though so but, but
1: uh, even, i mean so, so think about 1983 <laughs> with those bands so okay. you, you think that's that's u two's war rm's murmur and is it pornography is that the cure record from 1983
0: uh you would know more than me yeah
1: what do they have in common? Because um, R.E.M.'s doing that weird, like, jangle rock thing. Yeah. It, it sounds It sounds like the birds at the bottom of a fish tank. Yeah. Well, U2 is clearly shooting for the stadiums at that point. Yes. But I think reasonably you could call them both alternative because it's this overarching label that's not very specific.
0: Well, and at that time they were called college radio stations, right? Uh, they, they weren't – they were, you know – radio stations that were housed out of universities that had radio stations would, would air this kind of non-mainstream um, corporate rock, I suppose, and and that it had its own format called college radio, and so I don't remember if The Cure was really a part of that, but definitely REM and U2 were, um, but yeah, those were the kind of off the sort of beaten path um, of uh, <laughs> if you want to call it like the MTV 120 Minutes crowd I suppose um, sure th- that's that's they were definitely a part of that so um, I do miss that show uh, 120 Minutes was awesome so um, but yeah so that's the, the I guess landscape the, that these bands are coming out of right and you're right I think that your initial observation is a really interesting one that they kind of follow each other as in parallel tracks for a while through the 80s um and then at some point in the 90s which we can get to later there's this big divergence with REM like going back into the underground if you will and and U2 um trying to establish self as the Rolling Stones or something, you know, and, uh, and I think that that's a really um, uh, interesting question as to what the difference is between these two bands. Um, What are some of the, I guess I have just jotted down some notes here about similarities and distinctions. I feel like stylistically, both of these bands come out of this sort of DIY aesthetic of the punk era
1: absolutely they're post-punk would be a good good term for them
0: yeah yeah exactly um but they're distinctly not punk bands right they 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 define alternative music in a much more kind of subtle way I think than punk music does which um uh for I, I do you have any ideas about why that is like why they kind of redefined what DIY
1: is Well, I I just think punk must have been exhausted. There's only so many things you can do with that genre. And four years in, U2's first album is 1981. Four years in, what's left to do? And and, I mean, if you listen to Boy, which is the first U2 album, you hear the punk thing. The first single is I Will Follow, which is a punk song. Mm -hmm. I I mean, it, it may be more than a punk song, but it's a punk song. Um but, I mean, eventually that's just got to get old. And, and also, if you don't set yourself apart from a wave of music that started five years before that, we're not going to remember you. And so I think very quickly you two started introducing that atmospheric guitar thing that a lot of people think of as their thing.
0: yeah. Yeah, with the edge is his... his uh, th- and that's one thing about these two bands that is similar is that the lead guitar players are both very... You hear them and you know exactly who that is, right? They, they play very distinctive guitars.
1: And, and I'll point out that their their style comes from limitations. Yes. So, so, um, <laughs> very punky in so, that way. Yeah, yeah. So, th- I mean, Bono made a joke once that uh, I Will Follow only has one guitar string. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean... There's there's a documentary that came out a few years ago. I can't remember. I can't remember what it's called, but it followed uh, Jimmy Page, Jack White, and The Edge it might as, get as loud. guitar players. It's called. It, it might get loud. Yeah. That's right. And The Edge is so completely outclassed as a guitar player by both of those guys. He has almost, I shouldn't say almost no technical skill, because God knows he's a better guitar player than I do, uh, than I am. But everything, everything he everything he does is done with pedals. And so he, he shows them, the part I remember is he shows them how to play the song elevation and he's just strumming. That it's just like a a single downstroke and everything else happens through the effects. That's, that's a limitation that he turned into a strength. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, And the same goes for Peter Buck of REM. The reason there's so many arpeggios on, in REM's early stuff, supposedly is that Peter Buck couldn't change uh, chords fast enough to, to strum. <laughs> now that, that doesn't sound true to me because I've tried to play that early REM stuff and, and the arpeggios are very fast. Yeah. And I think it's it would be much easier for him just to strum, but at least the way he tells it, it's, it's a limitation rather than a, a, a conscious artistic choice. It's also worth noting. He wasn't going to be the uh, guitar player. Mike Mills, the bass player was originally going to be the guitar player of REM. And, uh, Peter Buck said well you're way better at the bass than I am even though you're a lot better at the guitar than I am so why don't we switch
0: <laughs> well, that's interesting because the bass is you know in my experience so much easier to play um but that yeah I guess that happens
1: I mean they do yeah, say think that, about how important the bass is to those early REM albums sure
0: yeah absolutely right I mean it's very rhythmic and uh without the bass being strong you know and and you know reliable then yeah those songs don't work at all for sure um
1: well, and I think that's a hallmark of the post-punk thing too because because we one of the things that punk turns into is dance music. Yeah, you, you think of like the the early uh, Talking Heads records and stuff like that. So I mean, it makes sense that your bass player would be the most talented musician in your band.
0: Yeah, Blondie um, is like that as well. And and uh, and actually, um, you know, Mick Jones from the Clash he went on to form Big Audio Dynamite, which was, of course basically a disco band right
1: and so, Right, yeah. but i mean even the two big the two big well the one of the two big clash hits is uh rock the casbah which is just a disco song essentially
0: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you can sort of see you know mick jones's like influence you can tell when it's mick jones and when it's joe strummer right in, in the clash you can always tell who's in the lead there in the creation of a song um, man we got
1: to do an episode on the clash
0: i do love the clash uh that's that is one of my uh that is probably the most important band for me, um actually, but uh yeah, someday <laughs> we'll do our clash album, so uh maybe that yeah well, yeah, we'll figure that we'll figure that out somehow uh, I'll do that off air um listeners don't want to hear this right now, so um but yeah, the idea of the the this clearly has its roots in that sort of punk uh do it yourself aesthetic um I think is important, and you're right that I think that kind of the style of punk music definitely had a limited time period, right, and it was a rebellion against a certain thing right and i feel like the rebellious spirit that rem and you too then pick up from that tradition is more is less political probably and more um Stylistic then uh, And it's more democratic In terms of who's allowed To make music Kind of and, and that seems to be The political statement That it's making Early on Now politics Yeah yeah Because
1: both of them <laughs> Eventually get very political
0: Yeah politics Obviously become Now U2 much more Than R.E.M. I think um, R.E.M. Has one album My favorite of their albums Is Document That is um, You know Very political And very kind of ob- Also
1: uh, I mean Green is is Pretty political And uh, Automatic for the People Begins with Drive Which is a song About voting ostensibly although god knows how you get there from the actual lyrics it's muted though right and ignore land and yeah but you're right i mean you two you two is much more openly political than rem yeah
0: and i guess that that's a good transition into one of my points that i thought maybe we could get to is one difference in the band so they have this sort of common milieu that they emerge from Um, but there's a a real distinct difference from the beginning in that you two like always was out front screaming, look at me. And REM was always sort of in the shadows saying, don't look too close, right? There's a mutability to the, both the lyrics are much more obscure in you, in REM and Michael Stipe's delivery is, I mean, you don't really even know what he's saying, right? Most of the time in those early albums, especially. Um, whereas Bono and you two are very much up front and more obvious with what they're doing. and And I think that's a, to me, the, one of the main differences between those two bands, and I don't know if that tells you the two different routes that alternative music can take or what. I don't know what conclusions we can draw from that, but I think it's notable.
1: No, I think that's, I think that's true, and I, I think probably we missed something because it would have been interesting to go in the 90s and interview the biggest alternative bands of the era and say, which do you prefer, U2 or R.E.M.? and I, I i bet you'd be able to make some conclusions about what u2 fans what kind of music u2 fans make versus r e m fans yeah and honestly i it, it also explains by the way why u2 was more important to you when you were younger and gradually r e m took over r e m is yeah. the the more quote unquote artistic band right i mean they're more difficult right yeah yeah, yeah the, the sort of the, the sort of band an english major would like <laughs> <laughs> because the the lyrics the lyrics ask to be explicated in a way you really don't have to explicate most U two songs.
0: No, no. Sunday Bloody Sunday is like is not a difficult poem to understand, right? I mean, that, that's yeah.
1: and that's not a shot at that song. It's no. a great song. Yeah, but it's doing something different.
0: Yeah, absolutely, right? There's a there's a strive for popularity. That's not apparent in in REM's early work. Now, they do pick that up um, later on in the 80s. Right. But um, but, yeah, I think that that's a that's a real important difference uh, between them. Um, And I would say going back to the alternative radio format days of the early mid 90s, um, which in my memory, I correct my memory. That's like we don't know what to do with Nirvana and Nirvana is really popular with the smells like teen spirit thing. We gotta create a whole radio format because it doesn't sound we can't fit it with you know Taylor swift or not Taylor, Taylor Dane whoever was uh whatever Taylor was <laughs> wow whatever Taylor They're was very popular looking <laughs> whatever Taylor was uh popular back then uh but yeah uh and so I felt like alternative radio was largely a creation of not knowing what to do with Nirvana. Uh, and then, then they realized, Oh, we've already got green day too. Let's stick them in here. And all these other bands then just had a more natural fit. Uh, but um, I, my memory of that era is that most of those bands sounded a lot more like REM and a lot less like U two. I think very few bands, I mean, you to find bands that sound like U two, you have to go to Coldplay, uh, which are yeah, that's
1: true. Um, so, so I mean, of the big '90s alternative bands, the one that's probably most U two ish is Radiohead.
0: Yes, maybe so. Yeah, although but, I mean, you've
1: got a band like the Gen Blossoms wouldn't seem to have much U two influence at all, would they? No, no, I wouldn't think so. Or like semi-sonic for some – oh, I'm from – I live in Minneapolis now. So maybe that's why I'm thinking of semi-sonic.
0: And that's kind of late 90s. That's like after the heyday of that format too. Um that's true. Um, but yeah, I, I do like that album, actually. <laughs> they were playing that during the Super Bowl the other night. The
1: lead, the lead single is, I mean, it's Closing Time's a perfect. It, it, it's an all-time pop-,
0: pop song. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's great, yeah.
0: And that whole it just album. just doesn't get better than that. <laughs> true, it's, it's really, really great stuff. But, um, but
1: you, you, you're right. I think in terms of direct influence, uh, REM was probably more important to most of those 90s alternative bands. Although I, I wonder if that's just a British-American thing. I mean the the two the two bands we mentioned, Coldplay and Radiohead, are both UK bands.
0: Hmm, that's a good point. Um, Although
1: I, I should say Radiohead were, I mean, friends with the guys in R.E.M. too, so it's not it's not a neither or in 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 that situation. I think, but certainly their music sounds to me much more like U two than like
0: radiohead uh, might split, like they might split the difference though because I think lyrically they're very difficult like REM is but sonically or in terms of composition it's it's big and, and you know what I'm saying and and it's yeah um, like you too is and so I, I feel like Radiohead might be the hybrid <laughs> of these two that we're talking about um yeah and honestly uh one thing that I always think about when I think back to those days of the early um uh, alternative radio format. If you think about the bands that were big in that format, to think that we look back, the ones that really stuck and became quote unquote important and long lasting, if you would have told me then it would have been Green Day and Radiohead. <laughs> I would have like laughed. I wouldn't have guessed that those would have been the two bands, um, after Creep, you know, from Radiohead and and, and Dookie from Green Day, that they would have been the bands. <laughs> that, I mean, I liked all of both of those albums and both of the all of their music. I, I do like both of those bands. I would have never guessed that they would have been the two important bands that emerged from that era, though. And so,
1: yeah, isn't that interesting? <laughs> what would you, What would you think, like the Wallflowers? Yeah, yeah,
0: something along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. That yeah. and they
1: just like. I, I mean, I know they've kept putting out records, but nobody's cared about the Wallflowers since bringing down a horse
0: yeah pearl jam maybe but again pearl, oh, they went i under, hate pearl jam. they went underground and they just decided not to pursue you know whatever uh make a career but yeah yeah I would well have, and
1: pearl jam's an interesting case too because out of all those bands they're the ones most indebted to early 70s rock like in some ways i think it's a misnomer to even think of them as an alternative rock band
0: yes but it sounded so different from what was popular at the time, that was the place. That's, true. that's the only place you could put them, right? <laughs> that was one, of, that's one of the, the, the strange features of that time in music. Right. And yeah. Um, yeah. Th- this is, this is interesting stuff. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about political activism, um, both in music and outside of music with these two bands? Well,
1: I, I think it's, it's fairly obvious that Bono is one of the great, uh, Oh, what's the, what's the term I'm looking for? He's like a non-government actor. in some ways he he's you know he he not only preaches from the stage which he absolutely does but that guy for all his faults and i think he would probably be the first to list off his faults for you for all his faults i think he's really trying to make a difference in the world and i think in some cases he probably has made a difference in the world so i i think beyond the political content of the music itself and i i do happen to think that you two is less interesting when they're political than when they're personal Mm. um but but I, I think he is a, a political person. Did you ever see the Simpsons episode that U2 was in? No. Homer's running for sanitation commissioner, and he finds out there's a U2 concert in Springfield, so he goes. And uh, he somehow gets on the stage and starts stumping. <laughs> and uh, they're going to throw him off, and Bono says, no, everybody listen to him. He's talking about waste, and that's <laughs> something that affects the whole planet. <laughs> And then then it cuts to the edge, talking to uh, Larry Mullen, the drummer, and he says, uh, oh, here we go. (laughs) I've always wondered if that's how the other members of that band feel about about his political activism, because you never hear them talk about it. It's always him. Yeah, it is. That band, the makeup
0: of that band is interesting. Um, Yeah, because it is – they all seem to be in some ways – overshadowed by Bono and yet they all have distinct personalities of their own and another difference from REM where like the personalities like no one has a personality in that band right oh um,
1: really you don't think Peter Buck has a personality
0: um not a public one I can't I mean I can't stereotype him like like I can all the band all the members of U two. I mean well, like how would you
1: describe it He's irascible. He he is he's difficult. He's an unpleasant person, but he's pleasant in his unpleasantness. He's a legendary drunk too. Do you remember? Um, this was early 20th century when he had 18 glasses of red wine and an ambien and got ejected from that flight. <laughs> i don't remember that no (laughs) no i think of buck as having a personality probably less so mike mills although i know people who've done coke with mike mills so i uh (laughs) i think of him maybe as more dangerous than his public persona is
0: oh and i guess that's all i'm talking about is the public persona right i mean yeah
1: there's something almost cartoonish about you too right like they're almost a team of superheroes
0: that's that's the you hit the metaphor that i was looking for go ahead yeah
1: yeah and and Meanwhile, the REM guys are guys who could live on your block.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: again, there's that difference. And, and do if you live in Athens. I mean, yeah. they, they didn't have enormous houses in Athens. They lived in normal neighborhoods. Yeah, I think I actually lived around the corner
0: from one of their mothers uh, in the little town outside of Athens. The rumor was that he had bought her a house uh, in our little town, Comer. Comer, Georgia. Me- um, me- yeah.
1: Meanwhile, I'm sure Bono lives in a castle. <laughs> I'm sure he does. <laughs> or like on a, on the space shuttle. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah, yeah
1: I, I think that's right i I think i think they, they have distinct personalities but it's it's their persona maybe is the right word
0: yeah the persona
1: they're, they're, the, the members of you two are all big but the, the only member of rem who's big is michael stipe and even that's a late development right i mean because as you say he his whole shtick early on was how shy he was
0: yeah right and and like Giving non-answers in interviews, particularly about his sexuality or whatnot. I mean, he he's like famously avoidant of the spotlight, right? And so I guess that is in its in its own way its own persona. But um, he's the only one that you probably would even recognize on the street, right? Um, but, Unless you're
1: a hardcore fan.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I often wonder when I was living down there in Athens that how many times I went by them and never even noticed them right um but uh but yeah the um uh but you too they all like have very distinct looks that you know have maintained and you know subtly developed over time, but don't you know you can see the thread from where they began to where they are now. And yeah, the edge
1: wears a variety of stupid hats. Yes, <laughs> Bono wears sunglasses.
0: Yeah, yeah. The mullets at the beginning with Bono develops into something else. Yeah. Now, now the drummer is that Larry Mullen. Um, yeah, yeah. He has maintained a pretty standard just sort of normal guy look uh his whole life with the you know shortcut blonde hair but and when but, i
1: saw when i saw youtube Ana said uh, he was introducing a band and he said now a man who's so handsome that he will never be allowed to sing for this band <laughs> larry mullen jr that's
0: hilarious yeah and then adam clayton's always up there just sort of acting like he wishes he was somewhere else. <laughs> he really <does. laughs> He always looks bored. <laughs> so, um, but anyway. That's a good look on a bass player, though. It is, yeah, yeah. That's all you can do, especially in that band, right? Um, this was a diversion from the talk about politics, though. And so, yeah, um, there's like a public political activism that U2 has taken up in its music very early on, too. And they're kind of the kind of band you would see at Live Aid and, and all these sorts of big celebrity. Um, shindigs you know what I'm saying these big sort of like uh, like liberal celebrity attempts at political activism um, and I, REM is not that right uh, they definitely yeah. do kind they do a lot of political and humanitarian work but not in anywhere near the same way
1: yeah, I, I would agree with that. Even when they were at their biggest, I mean, they did like rock the vote and free Tibet and stuff like that. But yeah, you're right. Nothing like nothing like what you two did. Yeah, and and I, I that's got to be
0: important, right? To think about the difference between these two bands is their willingness and and you know the depth with which I guess they pursue political activism. Um, I, I I I don't know what it means for the possible directions of alternative music, but I do think it's really interesting. Um, and I don't have anything to say about it. Unfortunately, I was open. Well, I mean,
1: one thing that's interesting is the nineties were not to my memory. I'm, I'm saying this off the cuff, so I could be totally wrong. The nineties are not a terribly political time for alternative rock music.
0: Well, yeah, that's
1: true. I, I mean, there are some exceptions, but and, it's, it's hard to think of an American alternative rock band in the nineties. That was as political as you too, for example. Um Green yeah. Day didn't get there till much later. Yeah, well, I mean, but and so, when they did it, it was terrible.
0: I liked American Idiot. I, I
1: I still like that album. I
0: just listened to it like a month or two ago, and I actually still like that album. But I I have way too much. Uh, I, I give way too much leeway to uh, Green Day, though I, I do like them, and I always have, and I probably give them more leeway than they deserve. So, um, um, I'm willing to admit my faults on this show. Everybody knows that. Um, so, yeah, fight back at me. I don't care. Tell me how terrible Green Day is, but um, I. But going back to, I think what we're talking about though is a, a function of time. Then, and so if you think about when punk emerged, that's a very politically tumultuous time. Okay. Uh, The late 70s, all sorts of stuff is going on on the global stage. Um, And in the 80s, you have this kind of cultural conservatism that is finding hegemony, you know, in America and Britain. Um, because of Reagan and Thatcher, right? And so right. The, the political discontent is more on those lines. Like, and this is where REM does get political. It's about that kind of kind of cultural conservatism. Uh, it's like a reaction against that. And so exhuming McCarthy, for example, uh, from the song "Document" is very much about the kind of the climate, right? It's not so much about a political crisis. Um, and then the '90s, we really didn't have political crises like we did in i mean that was a time of prosperity right
1: well we we did but there are racial crises and and so rap music is political in the 90s in a way that rock music isn't for the most part
0: abs man you got me there that's awesome um the that's when gangster rap and and you know public enemy and, and all those bands um are really finding a voice right um because they are pointing out things that bands like rem and u2 are not right um for obvious reasons.
1: So yeah, that's a different kind of political, oh, I guess situation. You know, it's interesting. There are basically I'm going through it quickly in my head. There are no basically no political REM songs during the Clinton era. Yeah. Um it's it, it's like getting a democrat elected was all they wanted. <laughs> It, well, th- but to be fair, there aren't a lot of political U2 songs during that era either because they're in their irony period, my favorite period of U2. Oh, really? You like that, huh? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Those, those three 90s albums from U2, that's what I like the best about them. Hmm. But, but I mean, those are mostly non-political albums, too. There's a little bit, but nothing like On the Joshua Tree, for example, or Rattle and Hum. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a different time that I think makes the punk aesthetic not usable. Right. I mean, it would just look weird to be ranting and railing against these institutions that nobody's that unhappy with. Right. Um, and so th- that looks. And so that's why uh, that kind of uh, sorry, I'm recording at home and my neighbor has decided to snow blow. So there's a little bit of uh, live ambiance here today that I can't get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, guys. Um, uh, but the uh, uh, but so that Gangster rap and sort of hip-hop in the 90s looks much more like punk in the 70s than rock music does, right? Um, And I think there are very political reasons for that. There are very clear reasons why that kind of, oh, I guess, brash, in-your-face rebelliousness uh, is confined to that that genre in a way that alternative white alternative music doesn't take it up because it's interested in other things and And the
1: one the one big exception is uh, Rage Against the Machine but that's as much a rap act as it is a as a rock act
0: yeah yeah it's true yeah where did they fit in that time were they on they were they were on alternative radio
1: oh yeah they were yeah Killing in the Name was a big hit yeah yeah Paul baby Paul Ryan was at home rocking out to it ironic oh my gosh Do you know that was his favorite band Rage Against the Machine he learned that's
0: nothing <laughs> he so learned nothing <laughs> see this is why yeah I don't know all the parents complaining about the music their kids listen to Like falls shallow. I mean, if Paul Ryan can turn into Paul Ryan after listening to "Raging at the Machine," it has no effect on us. So, so, um, but uh, but yeah, uh, absolutely. I think that's a really good point to make about the politics of these two bands, and maybe the reason that U two is more political overtly is because they're from Ireland right uh, and you know in the 80s there was political controversy between Ireland and Northern Ireland right that was the, the, the I mean Sunday Blunday Sunday is about this and so um, they were coming out of an an era that was not so immune from actual like political violence and maybe that's why part of partly why their music addresses it more dr- addresses politics in general more more um, uh overtly than REM who you know Athens Georgia college kids, you know what I'm saying
1: well, and also if you look at the brand of politics the 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 REM songs that are political are generally about the us or uh, things the u s is doing elsewhere so you think of a song like Flowers of Guatemala from mm-hmm. lifes rich Pageant that's a that's about the u s intervening in South American affairs. U2 uh, you, you is interested in global politics, I think, in a way that REM just isn't. Uh, I mean, U2's writing songs about Desmond Tutu, and certainly a lot of South American stuff. Bullet the Blue Sky, I think, is much more about South America than it is about America's role in that. Mothers of the Disappeared. You know, they're, they're sure. doing stuff that is not confined to the U.S. Uh, the way I think most REM political stuff is
0: yeah I mean and yeah you think about we're all just so fixated on how offensive Reagan is to you know liberal sensibilities that becomes the entire scope of political activism not unlike the fixation of the of liberals on Trump right now right and it's that's we're, true. We're yeah. offended by his style, um, and that's the limitation of our critique about anything. I mean, we don't care about the the morality of drone, drone strikes. It's that Trump tweets about it in, a, in an inappropriate way, right? And so,
1: right, yeah. There's no there's no protest songs against Obama.
0: Yeah, and, and, and his drone warfare in the way that no one made uh, political music during the Clinton era, right? We were just happy to have a Democrat in, in the office, right? And so, um, yeah, I think that there's something. Shows the limitation of I think political activism in popular music. I think.
1: <laughs> now, now the one big exception, the one thing I think REM really did care about was environmental issues.
0: Yes. Well, yeah. The did album- you ever see Road
1: Film? The the uh, no. The con the, the, the it was from the Green Tour. They put out a, a video called Road Film. At one point, Stipe sees someone drinking a cup of water and he says, "That better not be styrofoam." <laughs> why are you selling it at your concert dude
0: (laughs) that reminds me of justin trudeau this week um like apparently uh told a woman who used the word mankind um in a in a question to him in a public forum he interrupted her and said no no it's people kind he (laughs)
1: He, oh. he like mansplained. That's what happens when you elect an underwear model as your president, as your prime minister.
0: He mansplained <laughs> feminism to a
1: <laughs> to a woman. He we, said we say we say uh, people kind, is that what it was? Yeah, it oh. Was. oh. <laughs> it was painfully
0: ignorant and, and yet hilarious as well. So, um yeah. <laughs> so just, my,
1: in, just in case you were thinking of fleeing our country for Canada, Danny. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I you know. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Well, what is going to happen? I mean, this kind of thing happens in an age of Trump, right? So even every everything is, Trudeau
1: is probably his fault. Yeah, I agree.
0: So <laughs> so um, anyway, so I so I don't know. There's a lot of uh, other areas we could talk about. Where were some of the things that
1: you had in mind? I am very interested in 1991 okay. because 1991 is both of the, both bands release albums that are wildly different from what they did before, and both of them have huge hits with it. So that you two released "Octung Baby,"
0: right? Is this um, one of your ironic albums that you like?
1: Yeah, I think that un- inaugurates the ironic period. And I really, do- the, I mean, there's the, I, ironic is probably putting it too strongly, but that album is much less strident than the joshua tree and rattle and hum right Um, i mean he's he's playing with the character he's 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 doing something else yeah they're he's they're
0: owning their big persona and they're like yes we're big and we're going to make our albums about how big we are right and and i I do love that album is the devil yeah that that's a great Um, album
1: yeah, I I think pretty much flawless. Uh but it think about how different it sounds from what came before. It's so metallic, it's so urban. It it just the, the atmospherics are there, but it's a very different kind of atmospheric. Meanwhile, REM is releasing Out of Time, which begins with a rap song and then does uh I, how how much of that album is acoustic? It's got to be much of it. It has the biggest uh single of their career with uh Losing my religion, which I, I'm not sure people really appreciate, how strange it is that that was such a hit. That is a, a song whose main instrument is the mandolin.
0: Yeah, I actually read, or no, I actually saw an interview with uh, Peter Buck, who said that he did that because he felt like he was becoming dangerously competent at guitar. Uh, And so he sounds
1: like something Peter Buck would say
0: (laughs) he wanted to play something that would allow him to be more amateurish, I guess, a little bit. And so that that's why that is such a powerful or a, a, a major presence on that album
1: yeah so i mean but think about that those are those are two bands uh u2's huge at that point rem is newly on a secular or a secular excuse me Hello. see where my head is oh my. a major label um <laughs> green is their first album for warner brothers so this this is a this is a big uh much anticipated follow-up and they released these albums that sound so radically different from what people were expecting from them i i just i, I think that's fascinating and i think it's Extra fascinating. That happens in 1991, which, as everybody knows, is the year of Nevermind.
0: And it's, yeah, and it's true. And that's the year they probably become closest i mean both of them are huge stadium bands in that moment right um and that's the moment where they kind of meet each other and then start diverging <laughs> again right uh as as bands and i think that that's a really interesting
1: well they film. literally meet each other because i think it's at the grammys in 1991 where automatic baby happens it must be 92 because oh. it wouldn't be automatic otherwise have you heard of automatic baby they they had the
0: Whatever superb group between them, right?
1: But they just did one song, so I think maybe maybe two songs. It was the uh, the rhythm section from U two, and then Mike Mills and stipe from R E M, and they they perform one the the U two song one, the Monster. Yes, I song.
0: I had forgotten all about that, but I do remember it now. Yeah, um, yeah, the Grammys likes to do stuff like that. Um, yeah, that's uh, I remember one time the Grammys. This must have been after Joe Strummer died they had a bunch of people do London call or no, was it London calling? It was London calling. Yeah. yeah. And I think
1: that was actually the rock and roll hall of fame.
0: Oh, was it? Oh, okay. Well, sorry. Yeah. But, um, I, I, find that stuff. I found that all of the people that I love in that group, like I love Elvis Costello. I love Bruce Springsteen, you know, um, I just hated that. <laughs> I felt like it was <laughs> crass and, and che- cheesy. And so I, I, oh, I like I, that stuff. Yeah. But, but I do remember this now uh, that you're mentioning it. And so, yeah, there, so what uh, you, you made the connection. It's the year of nevermind. Like, what can we draw from that?
1: You know, sometimes things are bubbling in all different places and, and they all just come together at this. I like, I think about how, Newton and Leibniz simultaneously invented calculus without really input from each other. Mm. I, I think sometimes the, the the culture just demands things and they happen. And and for whatever reason, maybe it was poison. <laughs> you know, maybe it was Michael Jackson. But forever, for whatever reason, in 1991, we decided we wanted something different. We wanted something weird. In some cases, I yeah. mean, I don't know how weird Nirvana really is, but. Certainly, Octung Baby" and "Out of Time" are two really strange albums to have come out in 1991.
0: Yeah, and utterly different. They weren't m- copying each other, right? No, they, they have nothing in
1: common other than that they're strange.
0: They became strange for the band that was producing them, right? Um, and and to be fair, Nirvana was really weird uh, in the context of its time, right? Um, That's true. Um, I mean, nothing sounded like that on on radio, at least, right? Um, and so, yeah. That's, uh, that's interesting. I wonder if it has something to do with the turning of a decade, if it, if it had something to do with, you know, people just being bored with the eighties and, and wanting to just drastically break with it somehow. And the end
1: of the cold war is, is right around there.
0: Yeah, that's true. That, that all happens. Uh, and there become songs like that. Well, what was that band that had the song right here, right now? Uh, uh, Jeez, I forget. I know the song. It's, Something it's like. In a, it's a commercial now. Something about Jesus, isn't it? Uh, Jesus is, Jones. Jesus Jones. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so, yeah, that became – yeah, people were more interested in in change, I think, in, in such a way. And there were people who were interested in just sort of reinvention, I think. Uh, but,
1: but also, I mean, U2's Octung Baby is recorded in Unified Berlin. Oh, that's why I mean that's why it's Octung Baby. I mean it's it's a German album in a lot of ways. That's
0: interesting. Did not know that. Um, yeah, I mean I think that's I mean, that's symbolic then of the of the changing of time, right? And and like historical progress. And so yeah, there could be something about that and and it also exactly coincides, as you say, with the beginning of what we called alternative radio right um that that's sort of the opening number at a time then when both u2 and rem were bigger than alternative radio right they were they were popular bands at that time they they were not the kind of bands that needed this uh alternative format and so there's a there's a certain irony to this too um yeah i I agree yeah um I so one question so that 1991 as a, a kind of a point at which these two bands meet in terms of their cultural influence, let's say at least. Um, there's also a point at which they diverge, right? And REM, um, they do sort of sometime in the mid 90s had Monster. I forget when that Monsters is.
1: Monsters they is
0: 1994. Okay, and that. Clearly trying to make big hits with that album, right? It's like big guitar rock, stadium rock album, right? I mean,
1: yeah, yeah, but also, go back and li- have you listened to that album not, recently?
0: Not since nineteen ninety six, maybe. <laughs> it's
1: it's a very non nineteen ninety four kind of big rock and roll. It's it's a it's a very like glam rock album. Huh. That's the so, one. So, in some ways, it, it does sound at home. In 1994, but in other ways, it, it's it's a throwback. It's it's a str- it's a stranger, better album than people give it credit for.
0: Hmm.
1: And, and it also has one of my very favorite REM songs, "Tongue," the the kind of weirdo psychedelic soul song right in the middle of the album.
0: <laughs> okay, I don't. I don't love remember that, that song. I don't remember that one. I never actually. I will,
1: I will spare you my falsetto, but. <laughs> Go back and listen to that album. It's better than you remember.
0: Yeah, I might do that. I, I've never actually owned that album. I've just sort of listened to it at friends' houses and things. Well, and
1: the good news is if you go to any used CD store in the world, there'll be 400 copies of it.
0: Yeah, well, that's what happens with popular albums, right? <laughs> so that's stocks, you know, used CD stores forever. So, yeah. Um, that's Yeah, so 1994, though. But after that, they seem. that's when they withdraw, right? Um, that's when... REM decides to kind of slink back into the shadows i mean i would say like shortly well there's that. a
1: really good reason for that okay which is they're on the tour that became corded at sound checks and things like that uh and and during that tour it's the monster tour the the drummer bill barry has a brain aneurysm in the middle of a set sure in fact i think he's playing tongue actually <laughs> and he almost dies and he says i'm done and he retires to a farm outside of Athens. Uh, I think he's played with the band twice since then. Like he really did. He actually retired. So I think when they, they, they decide to keep going as a trio, but they say, we can't keep doing the sorts of things we were doing. We need to do something different since it's essentially a different band now. And they put out up, which is, I mean, that is a bizarre album. You can call it electronic, but it's not really electronic. It's, 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 it's very quiet. It's very lush, and it's not the sort of album that makes you a superstar. Hmm. It, it, that that album wouldn't sound good in arenas. Mm-hmm. So, on on the one hand, you're right. I think they do make a conscious decision to withdraw in the sense that the the record they put out after that is you know a withdrawal record. But I think they did so not just because they wanted to withdraw, but because they felt pushed to it by the the absence of Bill Barry. That's
0: a really good point, and and yet other bands i mean keith moon died in the who went on right and i mean they they found another drummer right especially when it's the drummer you can always replace a drummer
1: <laughs> to feel like yeah I, I, but but see that's not the way that band worked that's what, what mean, i'm saying that band- that band was full democracy from the beginning. If every member didn't agree, they didn't do it.
0: That, that's what I'm saying, right? And so wow. <laughs> that, that's that's the point I'm getting to, at least, I mean, is that um, most bands would have not seen that as a point, as a reason to withdraw, right? There's something different about this band that I think says something about the nature of their art. And I think you're right, the democratic uh, do-it-yourself do spirit right from the beginning is Persisted, you know, in that band all the way through, there is a, a kind of integrity uh, artistically to what they're doing. Right. I mean, I can't imagine, I mean, God forbid anything happened to Larry Mullen, right? I can't imagine you two calling it quits if Larry Mullen's not there. Right. Um, and, and so uh, I do feel like there's something uh, about REM where they're trying to be true, to some sort of ideological spirit right
1: on the other hand let's be a little more fair to u two they've kept this the exact same lineup for 40 years mm-hmm. i mean that's not nothing i i think if if when the first member of u two dies i think the band i don't i don't know that i would say that they will dissolve although they probably should but i i think I, I think that will change who they are in a meaningful way. I don't think they'll just—I don't think they'll just hire some hired gun and move on. Even even REM never had a official full time drummer after that. They they used a few different people on records, and I think Bill Rafkin from uh from Ministry of all things played with them live. But hmm. and when you think back to U
0: two, then their longevity. I mean, you're exactly right. I think it's actually become increasingly impressive when you think about with the, the nature of their big personalities individually, that they did not implode as a band. Like, I mean, yeah,
1: well, I mean, what other band keeps the same lineup for that long?
0: Yeah. I mean, weird
1: Al Yankovic's band. That's a, that's the only one I can think of.
0: Did the clash make it four years? Right. I mean, and, 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 you know, Topper Heaton and, uh, Joe Strummer couldn't stand each other. Right. And so, yeah, there was a, uh, there's a sense in which, uh, big personalities like that don't exist together in that kind of harmony for that long, right? And so in some ways, I think of U2 more, I don't want to say this in a demeaning way, they're more of an institution than a band, right? And REM is more of a band. They're almost more like, U2 is more of a product almost than, than individual people. And I don't mean that in a bad way, uh, but I, I I don't know how to say it in a good way, though. But there, there's some something about them that transcends personality, whereas REM is utterly dependent on personality. And so,
1: well, let, let me give you. It's so funny because weren't earlier you saying that the well, members of REM don't pers- have public personas?
0: Persona but, and personality, I guess, is a difference here. Yeah.
1: Let Let me make that concrete. So, Automatic for the People, I think, is the best REM album. I know that's a super basic opinion, but if you if you look at Automatic for the People, there is at least one track um, on on that album f- that each member does not play on. Hmm. And it, it's hard to imagine that happening with you two, hmm. even even in the '90s when they're doing all these drum loops. Larry Mullen Jr. is still playing. Yeah. So, so I mean and you know automatic for the people's atypical in that respect but they they if you if you go back and listen i mean michael stipe's not on uh, new orleans instrumental uh, yeah. uh, peter buck and bill berry aren't on night swimming and i think it's uh, i think it's sweetness follows that mike mills isn't playing on yeah. so i mean that really is a conglomeration of personalities coming together and making these songs that don't necessarily involve them all oh the other one bill barry's not on is everybody hurts because yeah. it's a
0: drum machine oh. but he wrote everybody hurts. oh interesting
1: so think about how the weird lines of influence work there
0: yeah no that's interesting and it shows i mean there's a sense of like humility In service of the art there i suppose that uh that rem you know carries with it now rem like you too i mean can be obnoxious like in terms of like both of them have had moments of like artsy obnoxiousness right you talked about the styrofoam cup incidents right uh and so i i don't want to say that that's not the case but there is also like i think a sincere integrity and it looks different in both um both bands and i think it does There's a sense in which, okay, here's my conclusion, all right, um, that I've come to after this conversation. Um, If we want to talk about the way these two bands help us understand alternative music is that alternative music as a format was meant to be, Uh, a popular it was meant to be popular it was not meant to be anti-popular right Um, right but it had these sort of gradations and where it goes from there is U2 stands like as the popular band that everybody likes right REM maintains the sort of undergroundness that gives it the vitality that makes it not necessarily for everybody and so if you want to think about the two possible directions of alternative music after the alternative radio format, I think U2's like st- persistent stadium rock status, uh, versus REM's, you know, dis- dis- dissolution ultimately, um, is the two directions that it, they, they kind of uh, point to. Do you understand? Yeah. Does that make any yeah, that sense makes what I'm sense. saying? Yeah. So, I mean, what I'm saying is cold play is. A product of all the alternative music uh, like I mean they sound like you 2 sounded right? I mean if there was ever a band that was ripping off another band, it's Coldplay ripping off you too um, And I think that um, that is a natural product of what alternative radio as a format was uh, selling to people at the time um and whatever underground band you like that nobody ever heard of, I mean <laughs> they're they're more interested in the artistic integrity of the music beyond popular appeal. Like we more associate with REM.
1: But I mean REM was playing stadiums. I don't know if till the end, but I saw them in a stadium in two thousand three. Pretty in late. Fact, I saw them in the same. It was a. It wasn't a stadium. It was an arena. But I saw U two and REM in the same venue a year and a half apart. Hmm. So I mean, it's not like R.E.M. did lose their popularity in the sense that they were never as huge as U2 again. But it, it's not like it's not like they quietly became a underground rock band.
0: Yeah. All right. Maybe I don't Although it's I'm worth noting, the tour
1: I saw them on was a tour for their greatest hits album.
0: Oh, that's that's you know that's a good point. Um, and you have the kind of a nostalgia factor there. Um, I will
1: tell you this: the U2 concert was way better. Oh, really? i mean i love rem and and they they had with them on stage uh scott mccoy from the minus five and uh ken stringfellow from the posies both of whom i love but the the u2 concert like those guys make a tremendous amount of noise for four guys and i mean it was it was riveting
0: i, you I know, have to say there's certain music that just i love very dearly but doesn't Work well live, you know what I mean. Um, and then there's certain music that works way better live. And I th- I don't think that's necessarily a knock on the kind of music it is, but just the way it's meant to be experienced. Um, like I, I've seen, well, I,
1: I just U two was written for the arena. Yeah, I, and, and REM was written for the written to be on an album. And so I mean, it sounded good. It was a great concert. I enjoyed myself very much. But the, the U two concert just blew my mind. Yeah. I yeah, when they did the Joshua
0: Tree was that last year, um, they redid the, the the tour with they did the whole album, um, like everybody I knew in Cleveland simultaneously on Facebook Live was must have been at the stadium, <laughs> I practically was watching the thing from every seat in the house at the same time. Yeah that's, that's a, funny. yeah it's a it's a very huge uh, like concert and everyone just was blown away by it and yeah and I think Arien because of its mutability like I. I, I just can't imagine Michael Stipe being that interesting to see
1: live, frankly. No, he's, a, he's actually very, uh, you know, everybody is is nothing compared to Bono. Sure. But Stipe, Stipe's an interesting front man. I mean, he does stuff.
0: I You know, I just recently, I mean, I, I really like Justin Towns Earl, um, and I love his albums, right? And I've seen him a couple of times live. The first time I saw him, it was just him and a guitar it was at the Georgia Theater there in Athens, actually, and uh, and he had a, one accompanying guy who would play either an electric guitar or something else um, behind him, and it was really mellow, right? And and it just. It wasn't as good as listening to it on the album, right? And then he recently played, uh, he toured with the Sadies, this really great Canadian band. If you've never heard of them, you should check out the Sadies. They were great. Um, and they opened for him and were his backup band. I wanted to hear him with the full band, and it still wasn't that good. <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> I feel like if it was just him in a room with people, like that's the way his music is meant to be uh, con- uh, con- performed and consumed. And to Present it as a performance is it's not it just didn't hold up as well as it does on the record it isn't that he didn't sing well and he didn't play guitar well it just wasn't interesting um it, it just from being on a stage and so I, I mean i've seen him twice now in kind of both circumstances and i i enjoyed both con, con, concerts but i haven't uh but i didn't wasn't thrilled by them right and so there's yeah
1: there's there's bands that are like that
0: yeah and and so it wasn't that the music is bad i love the music i still love those albums right but it, it's just something about it doesn't translate to the stage very well and i think there could be some reason that you two is big in the arenas because they are good they were an arena band so
1: yeah well and i mean plus bono just fully commits yeah he when i saw him he ran through the crowd uh, and out the back door. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he uh, for a for a man that old with uh, <laughs> with with that body, he he has a lot of energy. Yeah, yeah. And and again, I I haven't liked anything you two has done this this uh, millennium. I I but, don't believe
0: uh, I've even heard anything since the "It's a Beautiful Day" whatever that yeah.
1: album was. That um, album that album has has its moments. Yeah, you you must have remembered Vertigo. Uh, I don't know. That was, remember. Big, that was a big hit in 2004. Yeah, I haven't heard the new one. I've heard clips from it, and it sounds atrocious. Mm. Did you not? Did you not hear "Songs of Innocence" when they uploaded it to your iTunes?
0: I didn't have iPhone. I didn't have an iPhone at that time, so. So no, uh, I didn't. So I, I wasn't. Now that's an obnoxious move right there. That's what I'm talking really? about.
1: Really? <laughs> didn't think it was obnoxious at all. I thought it
0: was very nice. Okay, to upload your album to everybody's phone. Just I mean, assume something that they are excited to. I mean, that's just like a pomposity there. It assumes right?
1: that you're the biggest rock band in the world. Well, it does, which, which they are.
0: I guess that's true, but it's I also obnoxious. I think they should
1: have made it easier to delete it. Like that. That was the part I found obnoxious. <laughs> if people don't want it, let them delete it. They shouldn't have to. They shouldn't have to go to a special website to figure out how to delete it
0: like like radiohead like l- released their albums for free too at times right but it was by choice They didn't, didn't assume everybody wants the new radiohead we're just going to send it to your phone regardless right so that's what i'm talking about when they've each had their moments of obnoxious behavior that, that's a good one i'd forgotten about that actually so uh, since have I you
1: heard my wife's story about michael Stipe? no so as you know when you live in athens they tell you if you see the members of rem treat them like people don't go up to them. Don't make a big deal. Just, you know, let them, uh, let them alone. So Victoria works the box office for the, uh, the UGA theater department. And every year REM gives an enormous amount of money to the theater program. Great. You know, they're, they're plugged into the community. That's a good kind of political activism that sure. benefits everybody. Uh, So every year they're offered free tickets and they always turn them down because they're busy or don't want to come or whatever. But one year it's the big end of the year show with, uh, with a Christmas carol. And I mean, they, they go all out. It's a huge crowd pleasing show. All the shows are always sold out. They sell like roasted chestnuts in the lobby. The actors come and mill around in their costumes. It's a big deal, right? So they've offered the members of REM the tickets and, uh, And they have turned them down. But then 45 minutes before the show, they get a call from their manager saying, Oh, they're going to come. You need to give them some tickets. (laughs) So Victoria has to go to this family and tell them they have to go sit somewhere else because the members of REM uh, (laughs) are are coming to the concert or the (laughs) show. Excuse me. Uh, So they come in at the, you know, at the very last minute, which is fine. They don't want to, they don't want to make a big scene or whatever. And Victoria gives them her tickets and, uh, Stipe stands there and 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 looks at her funny and says, "Don't you know who I am?" Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, can you believe that? She said she wanted to say, yeah, someone who hasn't made a good album in 15 years." <laughs> She said, as they filed into the uh, as they filed into the theater, Mike Mills said, I'm so sorry and she she said she realized he must spend his entire life telling people that he's sorry for the way Michael Steinbeck's. So he
0: was upset at the the
1: he was upset that they didn't make a big enough deal oh. about him
0: showing up. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wow, that's amazing, actually. Um, it's depressing, but amazing. Jeez.
1: All but right. so, so, I mean, Bono's obnoxious, right? Bono's full of himself. But I'll take him because he's self-aware. Like yeah. Like that that guy that guy knows what he is and is willing to make fun of himself stipe does not make fun of himself he takes himself incredibly seriously
0: i had actually written self-seriousness uh next to rem i tried to make a column of each like the distinguishing features and i put self-seriousness next to rem I, i mean i feel like um that comes across in interviews i mean he never really struck me as a you know you know a warm person or sincere person. I I always felt like, uh, he took himself too seriously. I mean, you know, one of the dangers of, uh, of being committed to art, I suppose, is that you can end up being obnoxious. Well, and again,
1: Bono, it's not like, it's not like you choose music is not self-serious, but when you hear Bono talk, I do get the, the, the feeling he knows he's a jerk.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's playing the part, right? (laughs) So, wow that's a great story um that's it's too bad though but yeah and it's hilarious that mike mills <laughs> i'm
1: so sorry i'm so sorry <laughs> i am so sorry She will not listen to rem because of it oh wow that's crazy um but shouldn't like you too either that's why we didn't go see their latest tour that everybody went to
0: because
1: hmm. i'm not going to pay 200 for a ticket
0: well and that's the other thing i guess but i i did want to ask you while i have you here though um and then we'll wrap this up uh, this has been really great, though, Michael. I appreciate you uh, coming up with the topic and, and, and be willing to, to drop the knowledge on me about this. It's something that's pretty interesting. I've, you know, thought about alternative radio as a format before, and I never thought about it with any specificity. And this has helped me, I think, understand it a little bit. Um, as I guess, not necessarily truly alternative. It was another kind of marketing strategy, right? And to right. look at the trajectories of these two careers, which are kind of progenitors of the format, you can sort of spot how it's 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 not really outside of the market, right? It, it's it's part of the market. It's just another it's trick. It's slightly left of center. Yes, a slightly, yeah. It's liberalism at its finest, right? And so, um, and so the um, one thing I did want to ask you about is, since you know so much about, uh, like Christian radio and Christian music, especially. Do these bands have influence in Christian alternative music?
1: Yeah, I would say so. I, I would say, especially you too. I mean, you know, all worship music sounds just like you too. <laughs> I mean, that's just that that that's the, the obvious. The sloppy
0: but. wet kiss song, right? That's totally you too, isn't it?
1: <laughs> I mean. I'll, uh, yeah <laughs> but if you, I, think it, I think if you look at 90s alternative acts you will in in the Christian market I think you'll see plenty of bands that worshipped REM just as much as they worshiped you U2
0: hmm yeah I, I was I remember going into Christian bookstores and they used to have this you know, listen to it before you, buy it, it if you like. Yes. And there was that too. Right. And so I would often, you know, be looking for, you know, stuff that, you know, was resembling stuff I liked. And, and yeah, I never really got into the, into the format. I never really listened to Christian music uh, very much at all. And so I, you I have was just, to dig. huh?
1: You have to dig. Yeah. I, I mean, you gotta you gotta go a couple layers deep to to find anything worth listening to,
0: yeah, you do though. um if you guys if listeners haven't like followed Michael Farmer write stuff for the Christian humanist blog, right? um what was that, what was that series called?
1: A primer on Christian Alternative Rock. I haven't done one in about four months. Yeah, it, I, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't been interested in doing one in a while, so well, we'll see when I pick it back up.
0: Go back and read those. If you go to christianhumanist.org and just poke around that website, and, and you'll find uh, these blog posts that Michael has written about christian alternative rock uh it's i really interesting stuff and, and it's like a genre that i never really listened to i'd never heard of any of the bands um the the one band that i did actually like that was like a christian alternative band was the 77s
1: oh uh, the 77s are great yeah, yeah
0: i got really into them and um
1: do you know their story with you too no no <laughs> Oh, so they signed Island Records and in nineteen eighty seven they're gonna put out their self titled record, which is really a great kind of alternative pop rock record. It is I, I mean yeah. it's 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 a good record. And uh it has huge crossover appeal and it's gonna come out in April nineteen eighty seven. And the week before it comes out, the Joshua tree comes out <laughs> and all the promotion uh, in Island's budget goes straight to the Joshua Tree, and the '77s record drops, and and nobody cares about
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's too bad. the 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 '70 If you have never listened to the '77s, stylistically, a bit of a. The, there's hard to point a finger. Like, they, there's so much stylistic variation. At some points, they sound kind of like the doors. At some point, they sound kind of like, uh, some weird, like, who did Mexican radio? What, what was the name of that song? Uh, what was the name of that, that 80s, uh, like post punk song, uh, Mexican radio? X? Was that X? Uh, no, it wasn't X. Who, I forget who that was, but, um, shoot. Um, anyway, but, uh, It's on the tip of my tongue, but a very wide range of styles, and so it's almost hard to recognize the same band across their career. But really interesting stuff, Uh, and I really like the Seventy Sevens actually, and so I would uh, I would recommend you picking them up sometime. And I think they're a good group, and, and they really do, I think. Capture a bit of both of these two bands. And so one of the reasons I was asking is if, if you're interested in this and, and you want to hear like a Christian version of it, I think the 77s, you can hear a bit of REM
1: and I hear a bit of U2 as well. Uh, the, the choir, I think, would be mm. another one. And they're buddies with the 77s, so that makes sense. But I know I know early U2 and early REM were really important to the guys in the choir. Mm ignore their silly name the, the band is pretty good
0: that's <laughs> not a bad name I don't know about it. so but yeah um well michael uh that was great thank you for uh catching me up on this uh on this topic that i hadn't really thought about but this was a great suggestion if anybody out there listening has another suggestion for a show and you want to join in and be on the show with me i'm easy to find uh find us on facebook and twitter and uh sectarianreviewpodcast.com don't forget to go to iTunes and leave reviews. I didn't read a review for this one because there hasn't been a new one for a few weeks. Uh, read a review and I will, uh, go ahead and, uh, read it on air. Write a review, excuse me, and I'll read it on air. Even if it's a bad one, I'll read a bad review. I'm not afraid of, uh, my press. And so, um, I'm not like Michael Stipe. So, um, Mike, what's going on in the Christian Numism Network?
1: Uh oh you, you would ask me that, wouldn't you?
0: <laughs> you guys just released something on Galatians, was it?
1: Yeah, and by the time this comes out we'll have one on the wisdom of Solomon, which I actually need to go read this afternoon. And then I think our next one after that is gonna be on Miles Davis' Kind of Blue.
0: Ah that's nice. You got grubs to listen to that, huh?
1: Yeah, can you believe it? <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's great, yeah. And uh and I know that the Book of Nature has been uploading an episode every three days lately i think uh well they they didn't do
1: one for 18 months well they
0: had one they had a bunch of them then there were some editing problems and so they uh they got them all those solved and they've been just pumping these things out that have been sitting there for a while so uh and i actually sat in on a recent one with them about gene editing that was a lot of fun to talk to those guys about science and you know, ethics and that sort of thing. And so, uh, yeah, check out the book of nature. City of man is always putting out new uh, podcasts. They're probably the most consistent <laughs> of what we're doing. they they're doing a lot of great stuff and Christian feminists. I forget what the last one, the Christian feminist podcast put out it Was
1: on Miss Fisher's murder mysteries. Oh, that's
0: right. Right. When I, mean, I was totally unaware of it, but, uh, uh <laughs> but, uh, but so I'll have to check that out before I listen to that episode. But as always go to Christian org for all of those, um uh, uh links to what we do as a network um, I try to spread the word as much as I can at our own social media presence here on sectarian review, but uh, it's a great network and you should uh, check out all the shows um, as always. Kristen Philippic. I never thank her enough for all she does for the show, I mean, all the network. I mean, not just the show uh, Christian humanist profiles. Of course, she arranges most of those interviews and uh, yeah, so she's sort of the heart and soul of the network. I told her, I told her her family's like the Kennedy's of, uh, of our network the other day. So, um, but, uh, um, be, Checking out uh, the, uh, excuse me, I, I distracted myself with my own fade in here. Uh, check out ChristianHumanist.org. Check out SectarianReviewPodcast.com. And I am Danny Anderson. Thanking Michael Farmer for joining me again today for a talk about REM and YouTube.